Well, good morning again, church. Great to see you all here in the flesh, right? Amen. Seeing you virtually is, uh, it does have some benefits, but I prefer to see you in person. It's great to see you again and glad everybody is staying well and some of you are masked up and looking good. And uh, so hope you continue that. I do you know, want to remind you, take care of yourself and uh, try to practice, uh, you know, the practices of good health um, and uh, keep yourself well, but uh, also don't live in fear. Um, our God is with us and uh, we have seen many things in our lives that are crazy and uh, hard to deal with and he'll get us through this one too. So I want to encourage you in that way. Uh, be assured that we're praying for you and uh, praying for you by name and uh, mindful of uh, some of the needs that you have. And even though we've been separated somewhat because of restrictions and all of those things, our love for you is not separated from you. And uh, so we're continuing to, to care for you and, and uh, be concerned about you and pray for you. And I know our deacons are still active in ministry and Sunday school teachers and so on. And uh, so I praise the Lord for that. Um, I thought it would also be appropriate for me to um, just make this comment. Uh, last Sunday, uh, we, you know, it was our first time together, and, and uh, we had, you know, all of our generations in here together. And I want to say that the behavior of your children was impeccable. They, they did fantastic. And the adults need help, but the kids were great. And uh, it's great training for your children, by the way, how to navigate the public stuff nobody here expects your children to not move okay uh, nobody expects that at all so just do your best and uh, we're glad that they're in here and um, we're supposed to train them up from the time that they're infants so they become wise into salvation right and uh, so we're grateful for that and your children are always welcome at this church now I uh, want you to get your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 15 and uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 21 this morning. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about the glory of the gospel ministry. Now, um, in, a, in, a, in a way, I'm kind of preaching to myself. And then in another way, I'm, I'm kind of preaching to perhaps leadership um, in the Christian world. And then as a, a congregation, you need to be reminded of what it is that a pastor actually does. What is the calling of the pastor? The pastor's calling is not to be a figurehead or a contributor to a particular political movement. The office of the pastor is not to be leveraged by any social movement of the day. I was discussing with one of our congregants, that's a fancy word for a member, about events that are taking place in our world, and I, I don't want to have a long commentary on the social ills of, of the world. They've been around since the beginning, by the way. But I was not present at the courthouse or where the, wherever the gathering was. And here is the reason. The office of the pastor is not to be 
put into the hands of pagan secular movements and use the credibility of my king for their purposes. If they want to invite me down, I'll tell them what the king says to all of them. Black, white, yellow, red, I'll tell them what the king says. And the king says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you do not repent, you shall all likewise perish. I don't think they wanted any of that. So I wasn't called or asked. I know that's shocking to you. Lord, have mercy. I'll say more to you about that a little bit later and uh, hopefully encourage you. You do know that as Southern Baptists we have in our statement of faith the condemnation of racism. That's an official stance of ours. And when we find it in our hearts and in our churches, we do something about it. And we do not need a bunch of rioters and looters telling us that something's wrong. That's not, that's not law and order. That's craziness. So we're, we're not, we're not going to lend our support to that kind of stuff at, at all. I'm not going to... And I want to tell you this. I, I don't lend my support to political candidates either. Those people have been known to betray you as soon as they get in office. Paul never played footsies with Caesar. And I don't either. And I would remind you, one old boy one time wanted to use my church for his purposes to gain political office. And I got wind of it and ruined him. He wasn't elected. You just don't do that. This, this is an entity that's above all. So the bond that we have is beyond anything the world could possibly create. So we want to embrace what the Spirit of God does in the hearts of people rather than trying to force things by violence and coercion and shaming people and guilting people into things. We want to see a change of heart. That's what we shoot for and that's what we do. So if both sides want to talk about change of heart, I know someone that can help them. Now. When all the events of our world today are going on and we have pastors jumping to Twitter as soon as they can to make sure that they can signal to everybody how virtuous they are about the issues of society and people posting on Facebook videos and talking about how much of a racist they're not and all kinds of things. Is that really the job of the pastor? The Bible shows us clearly that we have a higher calling than getting down into the mud with the pigs and rooting around for acorns. So if you're looking at your Bible, look, look at Paul's ministry here. He talks about this, the gospel ministry. And, and I want to remind you again the context in case we miss it. The context of the book of Romans is chapter 1. Where people have worshipped the creature rather than creator. And having done so, then they begin to turn upon each other with murder and violence and hatred and immorality and debauchery. And what the book of Romans is about is how God takes these people, selfish and sinful and corrupted, 
from all different ethnicities and makes a people for himself. That's what the book is about. And so then Paul addresses in, verse, in chapters 12 and on the transformation of the heart and how it causes people of a particular congregation to overlook minor faults, things that really don't matter, and love one another deeply in Christ. That's what the context of the book of Romans is about. And so then Paul tells us as a minister of the gospel, if you are thinking of reconciliation of people, it's all in the gospel itself. Now people hijack the word gospel and make everything a gospel issue. Recycling has become a gospel issue with some of these people. The gospel is a message. It is the message of a God in heaven who sent his son to die in the place of sinners, raised on the third day, and whoever will repent and believe and trust upon him will have eternal life and their life will be eternally changed. That's the gospel. The rest of that is baloney. And they're trying to hijack that word in the evangelical world and use it for their purposes and turn the pastor into a mouthpiece for social revolution. I'm just not going to have it. I'm just not going to have it. And so the rest of the world can burn if it wants to, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not getting into that. We have a higher calling than that. And Paul looks at this church and they have some problems. You've got Jews on the one side that are quibbling over pickles. Who made them? I'm kind of exaggerating there for those of you that don't know about kosher pickles and what that even means. And then you have people from the Gentile world, from pagans, and they're eating anything and everything. And so this is a point of contention. They're like, man, you know, I thought we became Christian. And the, the Jews are saying, I didn't think it'd make you lawless to become a Christian. And the Christians are saying, I didn't think it'd make you a legalist to become one. And so here they are. And what Paul is getting at is this. He's saying, listen, for those of you that have a little stronger stomach than others, and some of those things don't bother you, condescend to where your brother is because it's more important that you love your brother deeply than it is that you get your rights. And then he's saying to those that are still have the training wheels of the law on them saying, you know, it's about time you learn to ride without those. But the point of it all is whether we make progress on those ends or not, the point of it all is this, Christ crucified for sinners. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. That was Paul's message. We don't come to you knowing all of these other things. We come to you preaching Christ and Him crucified. That's the message. That's the life changer. That's the eternity changer. That's the heart changer. And that's the message that we preach. And Paul looks at this church at Rome and He's been discussing for chapters and verses all of the problems and the difficulties. And now look what he says about them in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. You know what Paul is saying as a pastor and a missionary, he's talking about his satisfaction in the gospel ministry. What is it that satisfies 
a pastor, or a missionary? What is it that brings satisfaction in the gospel ministry? It certainly isn't that you ever have a day with a lack of problems. I do not know what it is about God's people. You put alfalfa in front of them, they run to the briar patch. I just don't get it. But that is just God's people. You find God's people arguing over the silliest things sometimes. That's just God's people. You find God's people wanting to run with the goats. You got to go get them. Get out of there. That's just God's people. And so you, you, you always have problems. So the satisfaction in the ministry is not that. The satisfaction in the ministry is not that if you become a pastor and people know who you are. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite for me. So that's, that's not it. What is it that satisfies you in the gospel ministry? It's when you are persuaded of the good of your congregation. You're not looking for a congregation as a pastor that's problem-free. If we want to have a problem-free congregation, then we start with the back row and we begin to exit in an orderly fashion. So it's not problem-free. People are people and people have problems and people are problems. And I've been known to cause a problem between people, sometimes myself, so hey. So it's not problem-free kind of living that you're looking for. You're not looking for heaven on earth. That's not going to happen. But what is it that satisfies? You see in your congregation that they are filled with the attributes of the Spirit of God. He said, I see that you're full of goodness. Filled with all knowledge. Now this doesn't mean that they knew everything about everything. It doesn't even mean that they knew everything they could know about God and about theology and about the Bible. And it certainly doesn't mean that any one individual had that knowledge. The idea here is, though, that this congregation is able to take its collective biblical training and working together, they can know who they ought to be, what they ought to do, and what they ought to believe. They don't need someone leading a denomination telling them what they ought to believe. The church knows because the church is taught rightly by its pastor. So here, filled with the attributes, can I say about Chillicothe Baptist Church that you're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge? I believe I can. I believe if I were to leave this pulpit today that you would survive. That you would come together in prayer. You'd come together searching the scriptures and you would know exactly what you needed to do and what you ought to do and the next step for your future. My job as a pastor is not to cripple you by making you dependent upon me. Too many pastors seem to have a need to be needed. And they build their congregation in that way so that people are so dependent upon them that they're forever crippled and they never grow up in Christ. Pastors have to be careful that they don't make the leading of their congregation about themselves. Pastors are expendable. They're temporary. They're not around forever. They get old. They die. Sometimes they move on. The congregation survives. Why? Because if the pastor teaches them rightly, they turn to the Word of God as their source of authority and sustenance. And I have every confidence in you 
that when my day is done here, I don't know when that will be. And some of you are praying for sooner rather than later, but just hold on. But I have every confidence that you will survive because you are full of goodness and you are filled with all knowledge. Goodness is kindness in action. Now, do you want to know what I tell new members when they are considering, or potential members, they're considering joining our church? Everybody wants to know a couple of things. One, what's the pastor like? And so they want to know the pastor. The most important person here, as far as someone joining our church or not, is really your pastor. He's the first impression. Now you understand some things. I don't attempt to make a good first impression. You're going to have to fight for it if you want to join this church. You're going to have to want it. So this, this church is too valuable to be just put out there and say, well, get it if you want. If you don't, it's okay. It's, it's, it's beyond that. So being a member of this congregation is a high privilege. But I, I, I do try to be kind. I try to be clear. But kind. But you know what I tell them about you? I tell them, now listen. Our people are a little slow to warm up. This is southern Ohio. And their first, their, their default setting is suspicion. Wonder what they're doing here. I have a pastor friend. The pastor's not too far from here. And it took him a long time to get his deacons to stop calling guests strangers. They were counting how many strangers they had every Sunday. And he's like, would y'all please stop using that word? You know what I would have done? I would have given in and just get up and say, welcome to all the strangers here. We have a stranger card for you to fill out, and we have a stranger gift for you. So what is, you know, that's us. That's Southern Ohio. But I tell them, if you ever have a need, our people will smother you with kindness. If something ever goes wrong in your life, they do show up. So you just wait and see. Now, I always tell them, don't fake something wrong just to see, okay? But they do. That's our people. So I can say of you that you are filled with goodness, which is kindness in action. So that's what Paul was saying about this church. And, and I think it's important, it, it, those of us that are in the pastoral ministry, we, we have a job of correction. We have a job of instruction. Sometimes it's a job of rebuke. But it's also important that if you're a pastor or if you're a church leader, a deacon or a Sunday school teacher in our church, it's also important to remind ourselves that when we look at our congregation, there's plenty to be satisfied about. And so we, Paul was saying to this church, even with all of their problems and difficulties, I am satisfied. I'm persuaded about you. Some good things about you. I'm persuaded of them. Then he says also this. He's satisfied because they're filled with the ability from the Spirit. He said you're able to instruct one another. The pastor is the primary instructor of a congregation. The doctrine, the teaching of it lie completely within his hands. Every teacher answers directly to the pastor. There's no in-between person. Any committee that tries to stand between me and the doctrine of this church will find out that's not a pretty place to be. I don't answer to committees, by the way. Committees are not 
biblically sanctioned. The office of the pastor is biblically established. So I don't answer to committees. But committees help me do pastoral ministry. And I'm wise enough to know when I have people in the room that know more about a topic than I do, to enlist their help and to encourage their ministry because it expands the office of the pastor. I have every right to give oversight and management of the spending of the finances of this church. That is not placed in the hands of anyone else. That's the office of the pastor. He's the overseer of all. But I have some really good people that help our congregation with that. And I am completely content to work with them and to give way to them when they have a different opinion most often. Most of the time I'm like, you're probably right. Let's go with that. I'm not stupid. I understand it. I have other people in our congregation that are good leaders. I listen to them. So the pastor looks at his congregation and he's satisfied when he sees other leaders emerging. Other leaders can be troubling. Other leaders can sometimes just go right off the rails. But you want that in your congregation. You want the leadership to develop. Why? Because you want your church to be able to instruct itself. You want the church to be able to encourage and exhort one another. The pastor is to instruct you in the Word of God, but then you are to in turn instruct one another. Sunday school teaching is a test. It's a test of my ministry. If you're not instructing well as a teacher, that's my fault. If you're not ministering well, that's my fault. I didn't instruct you well. I didn't teach you well. Pastors should minister with their own end in mind. The pastor should always be thinking to himself, what will become of this church when I'm dead and gone? Or when they put me out to pasture or whatever. Will I have led them biblically? Will I have led them effectively? Have I kept them focused upon the Great Commission? Will they know how to stand strong for the gospel generations from now? Will these children grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord because I instructed their parents well? Will God call from among our little ones, pastors and missionaries for the next generation? Did I do that well? Paul was satisfied with what he saw in this church at Rome. One of the greatest compliments I ever received as a pastor was when I was transitioning from that congregation to another congregation. My ministry there was done. And one of the people came to me and said, Pastor, we'll be okay. You have taught us well. That's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear, oh, Pastor, I don't think we'll be able to make it without you. If you have done that to a church, you have led them wrongly. If there is a giant exodus from this church when I leave, I will come back and find you. You follow me as I follow Christ. But you don't follow me instead of Christ. Christ has called you to this congregation if He has. If you're here, He has. And you stay. And you help your congregation to find God's will for it. What He wants the church to do. 
I'm saying these things to you ahead of time. Because one of these days, that day will approach us. I'm 57 years old. One of these days will come to that place. I don't want you to forget what I'm telling you now. When that day comes, you won't remember. You won't think about those things unless I've told you ahead of time. My job as a pastor is to work myself out of a job. To make you, to be able to stand strong against all the things that our world will bring against you. I go to churches and make it a great place for whoever follows me to come. I hate that. I always follow a pastor that's miserable for me to go there. I hate that. But it's just my job. This is what I do. And so I have every confidence in you that we will set the course for the future. And no matter what's going on in the world around us and the craziness of it, you will stand firm on the gospel. You will. You cannot do otherwise. There is no other place for you to go. You cannot play with the world out there, with the culture, and try to placate them and satisfy them. It will never be satisfied. What the world out there wants, every movement, no matter what color they put to it, what they want is the submission of the church. They want you to bow the knee to the culture. We have a different message for the culture. Our message is every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our message to the culture. You, sir, will bow. You will bow. And so you will stand strong upon that message. You will not give way. And that is the satisfaction of a pastor of the ministry when he sees God's children walking in truth. Now, what is the service of the gospel ministry? What, what is a pastor really supposed to be doing? Oh, I know. In the middle of the night, come and get your cat out of the tree. That's what a good pastor would do. And every time that you get the flu, he should call you at least six times to make sure you're feeling okay. What's your temperature now? I know that there are people that think that. You don't think that. The reason you don't think that because you know it ain't happening. Next time, get a collie or some other lap dog. Sorry, you guys got a bulldog. Doesn't mean I don't care. I just have a higher concern for you than that. The service of the gospel ministry then. Here's what Paul says that the, the pastor does. And, and he's an apostle and a missionary, says in, in verse 15, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The service of the gospel ministry. Now, what is the aim of the ministry if you're a pastor and you're a church and, and you, you are a, an extension of pastoral ministry? So what is the aim? What are you trying to accomplish? 
Here's what Paul said. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. What does he mean by that? He's picturing the gospel ministry in terms of the Old Testament priesthood. Now, be aware of this. He's using it as an analogy. This is not a a case where you should call the pastor a priest. This is not trying to duplicate what they did in the Old Testament or model that. But he's using it as an analogy. And he says, you know, it's like this. If, If I were a priest in the Old Testament times... And I were offering offerings to the Lord, fellowship offering, a, an aroma offering, a free will offering. What would my offering be? And so the offering of the pastor is those who come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the offering that you offer up to Him. That's the aroma that God wants to smell. You say, well, pastor, have you seen the unsaved people in our world today? Yes, and that's the aroma that God wants to smell. But, but pastor, what color hair would you call that? I don't know. What, what do those tattoos mean? I, I don't know. I can't read them. It's amazing to me that I, I've, I've run into a guy from West Virginia that has Japanese, a Japanese tattoo. And I'm asking, what does it say? He says, I don't know. It just looks cool. Okay, we'll just go with it, man. So they don't always know either. I I, I don't know what the piercing stuff is about. Self-inflicted pain. I don't get that. Yeah. And some of the places they put it, oh boy. Yeah. I don't don't know. It's it's not wrong. It's just, I don't know. It just gives me this, I'm just kind of squeamish about it. I don't know. Anytime I ever pierced something, it was because I drove a nail the wrong way. It just, I just have bad memories of that kind of things. I don't know. But you, 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 we have a tendency to look at people and go, wow, you know, that, that's a sweet aroma to God. Folks come to Jesus and have a heart change. He could care less about the skin. He's after a person's heart. God knows how to make people beautiful no matter what they look like. That's what he does. And so this is what, yeah, amen, guy, you better believe it. You look better with a mask, bro. I missed you last Sunday, bro. I, yeah, glad you're here and things went well, brother. Worried to death about you this week. But you know, uh, God, God just, that's the aroma to God. That's, that's what he wants. And don't think that you're, the stench of your sin was any less than the people of our day. They may be a little more overt about it. That means obvious. They, but our hearts are the same before Christ. What, what manner of sin would we not commit? There's nothing. There are no boundaries for us. Except maybe you might get in trouble with your parents or something. That's about it. So this is the aroma. You know, and just think of the, the, Paul was a Jew. And he grew up thinking, man, Gentile people, Jewish people, or non-Jewish people are, are just nasty. Non-Jewish people, man, they, they're weird, the, the stuff that they eat. I mean, I know some of you haven't spent time in Africa, but, you know, some of the things that people will eat, I'm just like, that is just not for me, man. They're just plain gross. I mean, I, I walked off from a monkey barbecue one time. I'm like, man, I just can't do that one. And just, I don't, man, no. I went looking for frosted flakes. I mean, I just... 
So, you know, some things, some things are just weird. And, and so you have these Gentile people coming into church. They've come to know Jesus and they're all pierced up and eating stuff and crazy hairdos and weird looking apparel they're wearing. And the Jewish people are all conservative, like, whoa, man. And so, you know, but, but what Paul's saying is that's a sweet aroma to God. That's, that's pleasing to the Lord. Those Gentiles, those pagans, those people outside of the culture of the Bible Belt, those saved by grace, that is an offering that is acceptable to God. And it is, Paul shows us here, that it's not by his effort, but it's by the Holy Spirit, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who's focused this work and done it. So the aim of our ministry is this offering that we would offer up to the Lord. Our church has an offering to offer to the Lord. We give here every week and we give to this ministry to continue this ministry. But that's, that's a supplemental giving. The ultimate giving is that we offer up to the Lord those souls that have come to know Jesus and are growing up in the faith by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And we offer that up to the Lord and say, Lord, this is our offering to you. This is our offering. The approval in the ministry, Paul says, he says, I have every reason to brag. He said, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. What is the source of his approving of himself? You know, he said, I'm proud about my work. Well, what's the source of his approval? Well, it's in Christ Jesus. The reason for being proud of the work that he's done is because of his connection with Christ, his union with Christ, and Christ is all in his work. Anything done by mere human ability is a monument of shame. But with a dependency upon Christ and a connection upon Christ, you can approve of your work. You can be glad of it. You know, some of you will serve in a career your entire life and you'll look back on it and say, well, paid the bills. Something maybe you were excited about when you first started. You'll be about 30 years into that and you'll think to yourself, I can't wait till this is over. Do you know why? Because though work is functional and it does fulfill a purpose, apart from the kingdom of God and its work, it doesn't ultimately feel purposeful. And unless you connect yourself deeply within the work of the kingdom of God through your local church, your life will feel as if it doesn't have purpose. And what's interesting is when you give yourself over to the purpose of the kingdom, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis that may seem mundane, God redeems that and uses it for the purposes of His kingdom. Then what you're doing on a day-to-day basis actually seems to have meaning. That which you before were just going through the motions and drawing a paycheck now becomes part of the mission field. And so God does that when it's in Christ Jesus. When you are consciously, consistently, Focusing your mind on the fact that this is in Christ. It's in union with Him. It's because of my connection with Him, my relationship with Him. What is the, who's the author of the ministry? Paul says in verse 18 and 19, I'm not going to talk about anything, he says. Venture to speak of anything except, except this. Listen to this. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Who's the author of the ministry? Who's behind it all? Paul said, I'm just telling you what Christ has accomplished through me. He does does not say what I've accomplished for Christ. 
what Christ has accomplished through me. There's a great difference between being a human being and using all of your power to try to do something for God and being a human being who's surrendered to God and let the power of God work through you. There's a great difference between those two. Learn the secret of it. Learn the difference. The author of the ministry, constantly giving credit to who is really behind it all. Saturday mornings used to be firewood mornings at my house. We cut firewood almost year-round, I guess it seemed to me. And my dad used chainsaw. Me, an axe. And I used to say, Dad, why can't I use a chainsaw? He goes, oh, you want to play sports? That axe will help you. I don't think he cared. I think he just didn't want to swing the axe. I broke a handle of an axe one time. I don't think I did it on purpose, but learned a lesson over that. He goes, well, we just go to sledgehammer and, and wedge now. Uh, give me that axe back. But you, swim, but you know, it, it's good to have a good axe. I mean, it's, a, it's good to have one that's, that's a good tool, good solid oak handle. It's great to have. But the axe doesn't split wood, really. It's not the power or the force behind it. I can show you that because I let my sister try once and she couldn't split anything. Now she'd split hairs in an argument, but that's about it. So it's, it's the power behind it. We must ever remind ourselves, whether you have the smallest and least recognized ministry in the church or you have the ministry that's most recognized and most public, you must remember this one thing. You are not the author of that ministry. If anything is accomplished that matters at all, it is Christ in me and it is Christ in you and through you. The world is to be brought not to economic equity, but to submission to Jesus. And that is a power that only Jesus has. That's what Jesus accomplishes through us. He is the author of the ministry. He owns the ministry. So many times you do not even know how the power of Christ has worked like Daniel in the lion's den to keep my mouth shut. But to go into a church and a church building, a meeting house, and some professing Christian to say, that's my seat. I'm sorry, you don't own any of them. It all belongs to Christ. We're just managers of it all. That's why if you spill your coffee today, you ought to clean it up. Because you just spilled coffee on Jesus' carpet. We're just managers. That's why you ought not ever show up to Bible study unprepared. You've been given a privilege. You show up. Ready to go. Prepared. Because God has given that to you. And the fact that He's given it, that's by His grace. Do you realize the majority of the people in the world don't have an opportunity to even go to Bible study? The overwhelming majority of people in the world don't even have that chance. He's the author of the ministry that we have here. He's giving people a chance. He's giving them an opportunity. He's giving them a blessing. But he's the author of it. And the reason and purpose of his ministry is, as he says here, to bring the Gentiles 
to obedience by word and deed. What is obedience? What is he talking about? That's the gospel. A gospel is, when you come to Jesus, you must understand that you are responding in obedience to a command. The king commands you to repent and believe. And if you are to come to Christ, you must come in submission and humility, obeying the king. This is not Jesus at the election poll hoping you'll choose him. This is Jesus, the king of the universe, demanding that you submit. That's the response to the gospel. That's what believe means. Believe doesn't mean just agree. Believe means to submit. So he's the author of this ministry. Now what is the scope of the ministry here? And, and how far is it to reach? Well, Paul puts that, puts that forth, I mean, before us here. And he's, he's talking about his own ministry. But by doing this, he's setting this church up, by the way. Because you know what he's getting ready to do to them, don't you? He's, he's talking about what the gospel should go forth and it should go everywhere. You know what he's getting ready to do, don't you? Will y'all support me in the mission to Spain? That's what's coming. They don't know. Sometimes churches don't know they're being set up. But us preachers, we're always working you. So it's, it's happening, right? So here, here's, what he, here's what happens. He says now in verse 19, the second half of it. So that, and he's talking about the grace of God has been given to him for this ministry. He says, so that, with the result that, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of uh, no, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So, what is the scope of the gospel ministry? The advancement of the gospel scope, he says in verse nineteen and twenty, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum is close to present-day Albania, folks. That's a thousand miles, and we're talking about miles with no roads. We're talking about paths through mountains and over rivers. And this is Paul journeying that far. He took seriously the command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. To go and make disciples of all nations. Paul took that quite seriously. And so he's presenting before them this is normal. This is normal for a pastor. This is normal for an apostle. This is normal for a missionary. That the gospel scope should constantly be expanded. Note this pioneering attitude and ambition. It must always be fed back into a congregation. Because we have a tendency to become satisfied with what we are. I know this is shocking to you. But I came to Ohio on purpose. I was pastoring a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Great place to live. I think the last uh, statistics I read is, is this, that the most Bibles in America are owned in that county. That's, I mean, it, that's just the way it is. Everybody there knows Jesus, or they at least lie about it. The, the, the church, there were so many Baptist churches, not counting the other evangelical churches in that town. 
And so, I, you know, it's a, the thing. I'm talking to a missionary friend of mine. I said, Bud, you know, how are you doing? He said, I know what you're asking. I said, yeah, what I'm asking. How do you stand it? He said, I don't know. I'm getting out of here. He was in Georgia. He said, I can't take it. We both have been on the mission field. Can't take it. I came to Cincinnati. I think I was the only theological. There may have been one other guy, theologically educated pastor in that whole association. And I'm like, this is where I ought to be. Oh, God, do I, do I really want to be here, though? And the first winter came. And I knew I'd missed the will of God. But the, the constant need, and you, you can't let that ever get out of your hearts. We, we do the thing in Cleveland. You know, we're, we're not tearing up stumps, but we're establishing a church there, helping one get established. Why do we do that? Because we can't let it ever get out of our heart that the gospel's scope is to never be extended. It must constantly be extended to the ends of the earth. And Paul was a model for this church at Rome. He, he's he's going to shame them here in a minute. He's like, hey, I'm willing to go to Spain, but you guys have got to get behind me. He's going to do that to them. But he's already telling them, this is my resume. This is what it means. This is the assignment that we have. Now, what is the authority for extending the scope of the gospel? Is this something that just happens in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? And we finally come to it and Jesus says, by the way, uh, I've just been thinking about something. I've been thinking that maybe you really ought to take the good news of the gospel, of how sinners can be forgiven of sin and be united with the Father in heaven and have eternal life. I was thinking maybe we ought to start letting other people in on that. Uh, good luck on that. I'm leaving, but I just kind of think it's a good idea. No, what, here, what Paul says here in verse 21, for as it is written, what, what does he say? Go back to the Old Testament. It has always been the plan of God to extend the good news of the Messiah to the ends of the earth. This is from Isaiah 52. He's getting ready to go right into that suffering servant passage about Jesus sprinkling the nations with his blood. About Jesus being bruised and beaten for our transgressions. He's getting ready to go right into that Isaiah is. Sometimes as pastors we call Isaiah the gospel of Isaiah. He's preaching Christ. And Paul's authority for his missionary endeavor is not something new. He sees the missionary task as actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Paul shows us here that not every action is a gospel action. He's showing us clearly here that adopting orphans is not a gospel issue. He's showing us here that Preserving trees is not a gospel issue. Everything's not a gospel issue, people. This world is on borrowed time. The gospel issue is the gospel. And that is to get this message proclaimed to as many people as we possibly can before Jesus comes. That's the gospel issue. But our attention has been diverted to a lot of other issues and as pastors we cannot allow that to happen to us are there social implications for a gospelized person absolutely if you don't start loving your neighbors yourself pretty quickly after you become a Christian you didn't get it if you, if you can't get past the color of someone's skin or the tint of it I, I don't know if you got it 
Something's not right in your heart. I mean, really, the, the problem with white people is they're jealous because they got less pigmentation. Y'all have to go to tanning bed and stuff. Spend all kinds of money on lotion and stuff trying to look good. All that mess, that, that's, but that's what's become primary among evangelists. Now, the world out there, they can do what they want. I'm not criticizing them. That's just certainly normal for them. But for us as followers of Christ, we have to clearly define what is it that the gospel is. It is a clear body of material. It is written in the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. It is to be declared to unredeemed sinners And it is to be declared with the intention that the sinner would place his or her complete faith and confidence in Jesus as Lord and Savior, thereby taking his or her place in the reconciled family of God. That is what the gospel does. And the context of the book of Romans is suspicion, ethnic tension, racism, hatred, murder, rioting, all kinds of things going on in the Roman culture. And Paul was saying, "Uh, excuse me, world, I think we have an answer for you if you'd like to hear it. It is true that as Christians, the remnants of a human-centered philosophy is always at work in our hearts. It's called the flesh. Making much of ourselves and little of God. It's always churning in us as Christians. So it's so easy to do the wrong thing, to say the wrong thing, to act the wrong way. It's so easy. But because we are redeemed, we redeem one another. Because we're redeemed, we know how to forgive one another. Because we're redeemed, we know we're in the process of accepting one another. Because we're redeemed, we know we're going to have to get along. We're we're with each other for eternity. We've got to figure it out. Because we're redeemed, we know that no hateful word, no wrong ever done is, is permanent. But a person can be renewed. A person can be restored. What someone may have said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. We do not hold them hostage to that today. We sang a song just a minute ago about God's mercy. That's from the book of Lamentations. His mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And as followers of Christ, our mercy has to be new every morning. For one another, for those who are following Christ, being merciful and kind and forgiving. We want to bend where we can. But we want to exalt Christ above all. We don't want to live under the scrutiny of someone else's agenda. But we want to live under the law of Christ. Loving each other as Christ has loved you. We must love humbly but also truthfully. Don't let people label you with any label except this devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In a few moments, I'll say some things about social things and issues of our world. I'll give you that in just a moment. Give it the place it deserves, about two minutes. But here is the issue of all issues. If you are a human being, you have a fundamental problem. And that fundamental problem is this. You are a sinner by nature and choice. And if God does not intervene in your life, you will go to hell. You will spend all of eternity in hell with no escape. Because you rejected the goodness and kindness of God. Every human being is in that situation. Every one of them. No matter where you're from. Christ is king. He demands obedience. He demands your following. But humans by nature raise the fist and say, No, I'll follow myself. Thank you. And so we trot on through this world in that situation. We fall off the end into eternity. And we find ourselves falling forever into the flames of hell. Is there any hope? There is one. His name is Jesus. He came, the Son of God came, lived perfectly in this world to be your righteousness. The righteous life that you could never live, He lived it for you. He went to the cross willingly and took not just physical death, but He took the judgment of God in your place. A judgment you can't stand. You can't hold up under it. But he took that judgment in your place if you're being called to him. He rose from the dead on the third day to prove that sin and death have been dealt with. The judgment of God has been dealt with in the place of his people. And now he has a command. And the command of the king is this. Leave Your self-guided, self-righteous, self-justifying, selfish life behind. Turn to the king. Stop trying to make yourself good enough for God. What an arrogant endeavor. Put your confidence in Christ who lived for you, died for you, rose again for you. And then... The benefits that he offers will be transferred to your life. What are the benefits that he offers? Well, he's the king. He'll give you direction by his Holy Spirit and by his word. He is the Savior. He will forgive all of your sins. He'll forgive the sin of rejecting him. He'll forgive it. He will become your best friend. He will become your advocate on the day of judgment. He will become the one who justifies you. He will become the one who instructs you. He will give you peace. He will give you joy. He will give you direction. He will give you purpose in life. He will make you right with the Father. He'll give you a family. He'll give you eternity. But He gives that to no one as long as they're walking away from Him. So I would say to you, All are sinners. All have the same need. 
We all need to be delivered from the penalty and power of sin. And there is no answer to that to be found in the halls of government. There's no answer or solution to be found in the school system. The answer to our problem is not found in the parades of rioters and looters and sign holders and slogan shouters. The answer is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Will you come to Him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the eternal gospel. Thank you that it is proclaimed and shouted from the pages of Scripture. Thank you that it is available to us. Thank you, O God, that you are willing to let us know how that we can come to Christ. Now, I pray that by the active work of the Spirit of God, that you would move upon those hearts, that you would grant faith to those who are not believing. Lord, would you grant repentance to them that they may turn. Would you, Father, give them conversion to Christ that they may come to know Him. Lord, all of this is of you. It's by you, from you, and to you. It is for you. It is your work and yours alone. Take the gospel, Lord, and use it as that which lures people to yourself for their everlasting good. I pray also, Father, for your people. Lord, constantly we're prone to wander from your law and from your ways. We're constantly prone to take up our lives and put it in our own hands and do things our own way. We're constantly tempted, Father, to adopt and think in the, in the terms of this world rather than according to the Scriptures. Oh, Lord, convince us once again that not only is the Bible inerrant, but it is sufficient. It is our guide to life and faith and practice. And Lord, where we have erred from the standard of your word, I pray that you'd work repentance in the lives of your people today. And we pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And if you've never started following Christ, then I'll be here to help you to do that. Hey, what I need to do to follow Christ, well, I'll help you and, and you'll know exactly what Christ demands of you. You're looking for a church home, you don't know what to do about it. Hey, why don't you come? We'll help you know the steps to take next while we're singing together.